and Twitter. I'm Sylvia Bell. He's Hayes Brown. We have finally made it to the last day of the longest Black History Month in history, and you're watching AM to DM. Truly, I am glad that the 28 Days of Blackface is finally over, but we'll get to that later with a lot more detail. So the question I have right now is, did anything good happen this month? Because I will tell you that I am struggling to remember literally anything. I mean, the pickings are slim. Yes, they are. I mean, yes, like... Well, I mean, so let me think. The Oscars red carpet was pretty fly. I will give him that. Billy Porter in that gown. Woo! That was a moment a that moment. will stick with me. Yes. I mean, Angela Bassett. Angela Bassett. Amazing but as always. She's a constant. She's Look, a constant. we're still not aging. Hey, so we have really that good. In so our we favorite, got that going for you know, us. Melanie's working for us in that way. Yes. Um, the Tatiana remix was brought Fact. me personally. A lot of joy. Not the Barbiana No, version? the Tatiana. Let's not, we're talking about happy things here, Hayes. <laughs> Let's keep it happy. Okay, that's fair, that's fair. Okay, back to you. Uh, what good mm. did happen this month? It's like you um, really have to think God, about it. I survived the flu. That's the level <laughs> that I'm at right now. That's I got sick and didn't die. That's where I'm at oh. in terms of February. Mike Lee finally got an Oscar. He did, he did. I he loved, did. watching him jump on Samuel L. Jackson was just like, such black boy joy. It's true. Such a moment for us. That HBCU clinging. He's got. Alum. He's an. He's getting up in age, and he managed to like wrap them legs. Well, you know, I mean, he's you know, he goes to every Knicks game. So. It's true. It's true. <laughs> he's got them leg presses down. Yes, truly. And I mean, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. Mm? Watching our Kelly got get arrested Ooh. brought me a lot of joy. That this is here February. That's true. I mean, it says a lot that one of the highlights was watching a black man get arrested, but you know what? Worth it. Worth it for this one. Take him. He's off our he's off our list. In the tray, in the in the draft, R. Kelly out. Well, yes. Well, I was like again, happy to see it. Let's keep it going. Yes. I I mean, I love my nails. That was a good thing that happened. <laughs> It That's was a long, it I mean, a long I, ass I celebrated another birthday. Hey. That was great. But you know, other uh, than that, like, I oof. mean, it was rough. Well, here's hoping March doesn't feel as long as January or as racist as February. Mm. Let's take it to the timeline. Let us know what got you through the month using the hashtag am to dm We are going to be talking to Senator Cory Booker in a little bit, but first we are going to take a quick break. Kay. So we will be right back with you guys. Welcome back. We're actually going to jump ahead and get some fire tweets out there for you guys. And we are going to start off with this one from James Whitworth. You tweeted, How the fuck does Advil know what part of your body hurts? I mean, that's a good miracle drug right miracle there. Miracle drug. Head, got you. Foot, got you. It doesn't even matter. It'll find your, <laughs> what ails you. I mean, I, I would like to know the breakdown of that, honestly. Mm -hmm. but let's keep it moving. Auntie Auntie tweeted, your man needs $40? Give him four mink lashes and tell him to hit the block. Ooh, I can honestly say that you should not do that with me. I will come back with like $2. I have no idea <laughs> how much those lashes, lashes are actually Lashes are worth. getting so expensive. Okay, fill me in though. Like uh, Mink lashes, how much would I actually expect to Well, it depends to on what kind of mink lashes are you getting. If you're just getting like the strip, okay, mm -hmm. then maybe $10. I mean, like, maybe that's $40. But like if you get like individual lashes. Wait, like hair like, by hair? Hair by hair, that's in the hundreds of dollars. 
the future is wild. This friends. is why I try to keep my own when I can because I already have a nail addiction. I can't get to let. It's expensive to be a woman. It is expensive to be a woman. The patriarchy, we suck. Moving on. Diamond <laughs> <laughs> emoji. You tweeted, "Are you free today?" Tell me the motive, and I will let you know if I am free. That is me. I cannot Real. lie. That is my... If you text me saying, let's hang out on Saturday. What are we doing? Where am I going? How right. about you? I definitely am somebody who's like, mm, I can get back to you. Why? Why do you ask? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Why? Mm -hmm. i pretty straightforward texter. My excuse, though, is usually, I live in East Harlem. I am not coming to Brooklyn. That is always the perfect excuse. For non-New Yorkers, it's real. It's really real out there. Let's take this as a timeline really quickly, though. What is your go-to excuse to avoid going out? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. That's a good question. I want to know. I need more excuses. Amen. <laughs> Fill right. our books up. Ready for the next one? Let's. Puritan Unicorn tweeted, nobody. Judge Mathis, I know a crackhead when I see one. <laughs> Core it's, TV is just a very special a, place on television. So it's just I, my grandma was always more of a Judge Judy kind of woman, so that's uh, who I know, who I like appreciate in terms of fake judiciary. It's like, <laughs> I feel like others, grandmas and babysitters across the country feel like they could be a judge at this. Oh point. yeah, for sure. I'm sure my grandma thinks she can take someone to civil court and win. <laughs> All right, you ready for tweet of the day? Yes, let's do it. <laughs> Tweet of the day comes from Benny Davis. At age 23, Oprah was fired from her first reporting job. At age 30, Harrison Ford was a carpenter. Morgan Freeman landed his first major movie role at age 52. They all had time because climate change wasn't as pressing an issue for their generation. You, probably no time. Well, damn. Right? That's the tea <laughs> on that. That is correct. We Get your shit time. in before 30. 30 under 30 list, if it's, you're not on it, <laughs> you're doing nothing because we're drowning. Well, coming up, I am sitting down with Oscar-nominated actor Chiwetel Ejiofor. But up next, we are talking to Senator Cory Booker. Hey. It's been a long month, but in case you forgot, Senator Cory Booker announced that he is running for president. We're going live from the district with the New Jersey senator now. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. It's so good to be on with you all. Good to have you. Good, good to have, to have you. you. Yeah. So let's start with a tweet from the Washington Post, Dave Weigel. New this morning, led by Cory Booker, five 2020 Dems back legislation to legalize marijuana and expunge the, conviction of, the convictions of users. So far, every 2020 Dem is in favor of decriminalization, but this goes further. What has changed since you first introduced the bill and what does it do? Well, I think we're calling people uh, to be about justice, not just about uh, uh, adult use, which I support, medical marijuana I support, but to do that and not correct what has been a, a, uh, a bigoted an impact of uh, a drug war that's been a war on people that over-incarcerated the poor, over-incarcerated uh, minorities, or over-incarcerated veterans. Uh, we need to be about restorative justice, and that means reinvesting in those communities that have been hurt by the war on drugs. It means expunging the records of people who've been un unjustly uh, uh, convicted uh, for doing things that two of the last three presidents admitted to doing, doing things that so many members of Congress have admitted to doing. So this is a bill that is about restorative justice, about reinvesting in communities hurt and harmed, about giving people who have been targeted by the drug 
drug war a chance to truly find uh, uh, restorative justice and redemption. So even after the states have legalized marijuana, the remaining arrests, you know, for using it in public or other offenses are disproportionately people of color, like you were saying. But how would your bill actually address that problem? So it does a number of things. Number one is it expunges the records of people who have those past convictions. Number two, for those people who are incarcerated now. And remember, this marijuana prohibition is going on at rates that most people don't understand. 2017, there were more people incarcerated or arrested for marijuana use than violent crimes. Mm -hmm. And so we have pathways to liberation for those people. Uh, in addition to that, though, very importantly, uh, we see that certain areas didn't get marijuana enforcement. You know, college campuses, not people being stopped and frisked on those college campuses, but uh, often poor communities, minority communities were targeted. So a big part of the bill is reinvesting in those communities uh, to have restorative justice be achieved, investing in education, jobs, opportunity. And then we have the incentives to states to do right by their marijuana laws. If they are disproportionately targeting uh, minority communities, low-income communities with their marijuana laws, then we have uh, consequences for that to push people into having sound policies that are uh, effectively and equally uh, uh, um, um, uh, put into place. Okay, so having said all of that though, you're introducing marijuana legislation, but you've said you've never smoked or ingested marijuana. Senator, how can America trust a guy who's never had a drink or smoked a joint at this point? <laughs> Look, man, I, I grew up with uh, two parents who were really concerned uh, that their young black uh, kids uh, were going to encounter a justice system that they knew was not fair. Uh, and so from the earliest ages, I was just schooled by parents. Uh, you're an athlete. You've got so much going for you. Your margins uh, for doing things that are illegal are a lot thinner. And I feel that and I've seen that in my community I grew up in in a uh, suburban, uh, predominantly white community, very different enforcement of drug laws, a lot more comfort for violating those laws in an inner city community that I live in now. So uh, I, I uh, as an athlete, was got very disciplined very quick and didn't want to put any variables in the equation of my life. Uh, but I've become the strongest advocate for uh, these kind of issues, and I'm going to continue to fight uh, to bring justice to our criminal justice system, which, as one of my friends and heroes, Brian Stevenson, says, treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. We have to have massive change. That's why I'm a leader of criminal justice reform uh, in the United States Senate and the United States Congress. Yeah, and I mean, that is very real. I think my parents also held me to those type of rules growing up <laughs> as a teenager because those are the facts. But I'm also, like, being a a black man in America for 40-something years with no vices is quite the accomplishment because it's hard out here for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what are your vices? That, well, that well what like? did, I think Lincoln said, I, I, I said Lincoln said, I think Lincoln said, a man with few vices has few virtues. So uh, I, I'm confident that I'm a virtuous person uh, and have vices in other areas. If you see what I do to empty carbohydrates uh, and two of my best friends, Ben and Jerry's, that's, that's one of my vices, but we can talk about that in another interview. So when did you decide this was something you were going to do? Have you just always been planning on running for office since you were five? I mean, you're vegan too. I mean, that, that it's really stuck with you for that long that oh, you, even now are just like, no, nothing. No, well, look, I, I uh, was one of those people who, uh, when I was growing up, just how politicians were suspect. I was a community organizer, a, a grassroots nonprofit guy. Uh, but I often say, be careful uh, what you send negative energy to. You often draw it to yourself. And before you knew it, I had people in the Central Ward of Newark 
I was living in the projects, my tenant leader there and others said, you got to run for city council. So uh, this was an unexpected career path that turned out to be probably one of the best uh, decisions I ever made, even though I resisted it. Uh, the life is about purpose. It is not about position. Uh, and my purpose from those early days as a grassroots lawyer fighting slumlords, trying to represent communities that are often left out of the equation, that, that remains my purpose now. And here I'm running for president, but I, I get a chance to talk about those folks that are often people don't want to talk about, like folks don't realize there's over a thousand jurisdictions in, in America that have twice, the, the kids have twice the blood lead levels in Flint, Michigan. Um, uh, but we don't talk about environmental justice enough. All this talk about climate change, which I'm willing to do right now, there are cancer clusters, uh, places where the respiratory diseases are off the charts that tend to be, those communities are overlooked, low-income communities, minority communities. So whether it's criminal justice, whether it's marijuana justice, whether it's environmental justice or economic justice, I got in politics to deal with those issues, and I'm proud now that I get to be running for president going all over this country trying to get folk woke, that there's pain all over this country. We've got to see that there's common pain, reunite to a sense of common purpose to deal with these injustices. You know, and you mentioned your early days in politics, and I'm a New Jersey native, so early on I saw you, to quote Migos, walking it like you talked it by living under similar programs and conditions as your constituents. Do you feel like you've been able to maintain that level of authenticity? Yeah, I, I've told people quite clearly, even when I started my race, my neighbors, because I still live uh, in an inner city community right down from the projects I used to live in. It's a low income community, even though my, my neighbors are rich with character, rich with uh, a, a purpose, and, and I just love my neighborhood. But look, it's like most many low income inner city communities. There's shootings in my neighborhood, uh, folks who work full time jobs. When they go to my corner bodega, they still have to use food stamps to get ahead. I see every single day the urgency of our unfinished business of our country, and it motivates me uh, and sustains me in my purpose. Um, and, and this is what really frustrates me is a lot of Americans from inner city communities to rural communities to factory towns uh, just feel uh, dissatisfied that this nation, this economy doesn't work for them anymore. And so I, I, I keep grounded. The only way I'll ever move out of uh, sort of communities uh, like the ones I've lived in for the last two decades is if I have to spend eight years in the White House. Uh, but I will always uh, be a part of communities of struggle. If you want to find me, uh, uh, where I want to be is, is with those people who are dealing right every single day on the front lines of the fight for the American dream. And that's why from the time I was in law school, spending time in prisons, uh, spending time in the projects, spending time uh, in the places where we do wrong, you know, I'm so proud that that criminal justice bill we just passed through the Senate, one of the things I fought for in that, the last thing I was negotiating, in fact, a few uh, feet from here, I was on the phone negotiating with the White House to get a ban on juvenile solitary confinement in our country, because that is literally considered torture in our country. Torture by, 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 by uh, human rights people. We were doing that and doing more. In fact, as we're having this conversation, there are thousands of children under state penitentiaries that, that or jails that are in solitary confinement haven't even been charged with anything yet. So we should all be mo morally motivated, um, especially those of us who put our hand over our heart and, and pledge an oath, pledge allegiance to the ideals of liberty and justice for all, to have a country that so assaults that ideals of justice, whether with, with imp imposing poverty on communities unjustly, whether it's imposing uh, incarceration on people unjustly, whether it's uh, imposing uh, 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 just a lack of clean water and clean air. Those are the kind of things uh, that are undermining the faith in this democracy and are the biggest threat to our democracy because people are checking out. 
people really don't think our politics serve them anymore. And we've got to get back to a campaign in this country that's not about an office, but a larger campaign for the ideals of this country that's a bigger than a person, bigger than an office, but really about these ideals. And I'll tell you what, we got to do it not by attacking each other. When I played uh, ball, I, I, played, I played ball in the Pac-10, now Pac-12, and I knew when we were going to score a touchdown, when those people in the huddle on the other side were arguing and fighting and attacking each other, I knew we were going to blow right through them and get into the end zone because that's a sign of weakness. What is strength, which is harder to do, is finding ways to unite people in common cause. That's what my grassroots organizing was about when I was starting my career, and, and that's what I'm here in this place, trying to reach across the aisle, find that common ground, and get bills passed like criminal justice reform or the marijuana justice. Act. Okay, yeah, I we hear that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so we want to lighten things up a bit by playing a game with you. Since you don't drink either, can you please uh -oh. tell us what's included to make the following <laughs> mixed drinks? Are you ready? Oh no, this is this is painful. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay, what is in a Manhattan? Wow, I mean it's from New York, Manhattan. Um, I have literally, like, this is going to be, I'm going to live to regret this lack of knowledge. I'm going to have to study some bartender book. I have no idea. So, I, I mean, I, what are they like in Manhattan? I, maybe rum, vodka? Uh, I don't know. My dad used to drink Long Island iced teas, but that's another part of New York. My dad it was like one of his favorite drinks. I have no idea what's in a Long Island iced tea, but iced tea. Oh, um, there's no iced tea uh, so in this Long is Island iced tea. There's zero <laughs> iced tea in there. Okay, maybe we can give an easier one. Well, first of all, Manhattan has uh, rye or cane whiskey. Please, tell me Bloody Sweet Mary. I know, I know what's in Bloody Mary, at least. <laughs> and a maraschino shirt. No, we are going on instead to, we'll give you an easier one, though. What is in a margarita? You can do this. We have faith in you. <laughs> oh. Well, um, so, a margarita, there's fruit, and there is ice, and there is uh, vodka. Oh, <laughs> um, no. Tequila. I'm tequila. sorry. I had, I, I had help from a friend. Somebody yelled out tequila. That's, that's my favorite karaoke song, because all I have to do is stand up there in karaoke and go, tequila. Uh, <laughs> it's control tequila and lime juice. You guys are rough. This is brutal. This is, this is literally, this might lose some votes from people in my family right now, because they're like embarrassed. Okay, okay. They're embarrassed. Easiest, easiest one possible. Go ahead. What's in a vodka soda? I would say in a vodka and soda, there's vodka and, let me see, soda. Okay. We are. Give okay. a round of applause here. You have Okay. Peter, Peter, really quick, really quick, before you go, before you go, if you don't Come smoke on. weed and why you don't you drink. Why did you ask me a question like, how do you... How, no, no, if you don't smoke weed, though, Why did you, you ask me drink. a question like, how do you beat, beat a two-deep zone? What offense is best at beating a two-deep zone? Too or, easy. Or that four fronts uh, on, on the line. That I, wouldn't I, be any fun to watch. Too <laughs> easy. But, Senator, so if you don't smoke weed and you don't drink, what do you and Rosario do when you go out? Wow, uh, <laughs> that is a setup if I've ever heard one. Um, I am a movie addict, so if you if you we're going out to good food, a good a good film is, is one of my favorite things to do when I go out. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us, Senator Booker. It's been a delight. <laughs> You guys rock. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to get back to you. Uh, I might send you one of the most uh, un unconscionable beverages called non-alcoholic beer, which oh, is almost as bad as decaffeinated coffee, but I'm going to send you that.
Thanks. <laughs> Thank Looking you. Looking forward to the package. <laughs> Man. Oh, wow. He did not know that one. He had. said vodka and a margarita. I, I am shook. never taking a drink with Cory Booker. <laughs> All right. Well, in case you wonder why we didn't ask specifically about some of his plans for running for president, there are ethics rules and talking about campaigns on Senate grounds, so we didn't want anyone to catch any smoke for that. No smoke. But you know what I am hoping happens on those grounds if what? he does win president? What? A wedding. Oh, snap. An American president getting married. Yes, I see this. I see it. I'm picturing it. Okay, do you think it would be at the National Cathedral or the White House? Both. Both. With part yes. reception at the White House. Mm -hmm. Ceremony, Ceremony at the church. I love that. CBC throwing all the after parties. <gasps> yes, we will get Maxine Waters. Invitations now. <laughs> Let's do this. And the Lifetime movie, I can see it. It's gonna An be American beautiful. royal wedding. Up next, more AM to DM. Stick around, everybody. Welcome back. This is The Sit Down, and I'm joined by Oscar-nominated actor Chiwetel Ejiofor. Now he's the star, writer, and director of the new film, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Hi. Hi, hey. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure, thank you. So you didn't just direct this film, you learned a new language for it. Let's take a look. Akulu akulu sankata kuzi wa zaka zako kama banali teste yake. Omene yankata ka yikatala chenya chotse chatsa njala akola komanja pa mutu wako kukutola akola komanzeo ya mata kupita kuskulo. Oyamba pomwe dena esera ndinale wochepa kwambiri. Why was learning the language important for you? Well, I just really wanted to, um, you know, to create the film with a really authentic sense of the place of um, of Malawi and this region of Malawi, um, you know, uh, in the Kasungu region and Wimbe, which is the village that William Kamkwamba is from and his community. So I was really keen to, um, you know, to take the audience on that real journey right into that space. And, um, and there's a real bilingual element to Malawi. You know, some people speak English, a lot of English is spoken in schools and in workplaces and so on, and that's reflected in the film uh, for about half the film. But in the, um, in the moments of the slightly more intimate private spaces in the village, with the family, in the community, you know, uh, they would normally speak Chichewa. So, um, so I decided to, to learn Chichewa and, uh, and work with other Malawian speakers and non-speakers non who also learned Chichewa as the, as the cast of the film. Okay. So which was harder, learning the new language or directing yourself? Well, I think they were both a little tricky, actually. <laughs> but uh, the uh, you know the the sort of self direction process was the one that I was really you know in, in going towards you know when we were in pre production, that was the bit that I was really kind of worried about actually. You know, the Chichiwa in a way you're kind of just sort of learning it, and we were doing we were learning every day, and we were trying to get, sort of get around get our heads around the language and. Mm -hmm. um, and understand it, but it was really sort of how it would feel on the floor when you're doing the scenes and then you're kind of directing other people and right. you're trying to work out what you're doing and how you're gauging that. So that, was, that took a little bit of getting used to, but it, um, it started to kind of work out and I was very well supported by the rest of the heads of department yeah. as well, yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier this, this uh, movie comes from William Kakwamba's book. What first resonated with, what resonated with you the most when you first read it? I just found his stories just 
deeply inspiring, a deeply inspiring emotional journey of a, of a young boy. You know, he was 13 at the time of the events. Right. You know, who was really facing down these enormous challenges that, that, uh, that had arrived in, you know, for his, in his community with this food shortage that had happened there. And him being, not being able to go to school, being taken out of school because secondary school isn't, isn't free in Malawi and the family was saving all the money that they could. And uh, this tenacity and, um, you know, optimism to sneak into school, to try and find any way that he could, you know, when he found an American textbook called mm -hmm. U Using Energy with a photograph of a, of a windmill on the front. And this idea just sort of sparked to him of building a wind turbine. So it was sort of just this, um, it was him really. It was, it was his journey that inspired me. And, uh, and, and um, you know, I really wanted to relate that experience. On film. Yeah, it was really remarkable. It's a really remarkable story. It's beautiful. Okay, um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. Um, because the Oscars were this past weekend. Yeah, that's right. What is the weirdest thing about attending the Oscars that we don't know from watching at home? I don't <laughs> <laughs> like the experience itself. Was there any part of it when you were there that you were like, Well, I think that wow. this year it's like it was because it was just three and three and a half hours. This yeah. Year, you know, which uh, I think is, you know, kind of better. You know, it's sort of more reasonable. I just remember when I was there, you know, I was there sort of two years on the trot and they were they it was an incredibly long, long. sequence. Yeah. And because you're not. You, you don't eat. You know, the, the year that I was nominated, uh -huh. you know, there was the whole kind of pizza thing that Ellen oh, brought yes. around the house. <laughs> but it's true, you know, you've got to time that food just right because it's, uh, it's a long, long evening, you know, from when you really, like, arrive on the red carpet right. to the end of the evening. And it's know. like all bars, no food. Exactly. There's no food anywhere, <laughs> you know, and you can't really run out across the street. So, right, yeah. right. And, you know, this year, Green Book won for Best Picture. Did you like that movie? Have you seen it? I I have seen it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I thought the film was. It wasn't my favorite film of the year, if I'm honest. But it was. Uh, but I didn't. You know, I, the, the sort of the, the sort of vitriol about it and just everybody's expression of that. Um, you know, it was that wasn't my reaction to it. You know, I yeah. thought I felt the film was fine. You know, I I, I kind of liked it and um, and I could understand why other people liked it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't feel like it was sort of outrageous or something. Yeah. Um, you know, but like I say, it wasn't my. It wasn't my yeah. favorite film of the year. But I, what I did like was just the spread of the films and the diversity of the films and the angle of the films and the perspective of the films, all of these different perspectives. And it's a funny thing with the Academy Awards because, you know, they vote for... The same people vote for the ones that you wanted to win <laughs> as the ones that you didn't want to win. win. You know yeah. I mean? so, um, so when are they wrong? Are they wrong when they voted for you or when they voted for the other guy? You know? Yeah, when they voted for the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one of the things I'm most excited about is The Lion King, oh, you yeah, think? Yeah. And that your voice scar. Can you give us a taste of your scar voice? I cannot give you a taste. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it! Yeah. Thank you for asking. We'll just we, have, to, yeah. have to wait and see. And I mean, was it, is it daunting being, you know, filling Jeremy Irons' shoes? Because, like, you know, he's had such a legendary part in this yeah, role. Yeah, no, no, it was wonderful to, to, to play the part. And, it, and I didn't really think of it that way uh -huh. you know, entirely. Are you going to put, like, your own spin on the exactly, character? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, but I think the whole thing does that, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of, um, in, in, just in its visual style and all of it, you know, I think it's just a kind of, it's um, it's a regeneration of that that whole experience for another generation and for my generation, you know, and for the generation that in, that enjoyed the original as well. So I think, and I hope that it's something that everybody can sort of come, come together, together and, yeah. and enjoy. I think that's exactly what it will be, actually. Nice. And you also have to sing "Be Prepared" on the soundtrack, right? We will see Ooh. whether that happens. You know, I mean, but was it intimidating the idea of being on the same album as Beyonce? Uh, we are going to have to find out. 
<laughs> when the film comes out, <laughs> whether those things are included. So we'll see. I can't really confirm or deny. You can't confirm or, or deny. deny. Are you in the beehive? Can you confirm or deny your place in the beehive, perhaps? <laughs> uh, I hope that I am. Yeah. I hope that, uh, that, that I'm included. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and uh, we shall see whether... <laughs> Exactly. Hold your own. I believe I have faith in you. I think the Scar Voice is going to be great, and I, I'm very excited for the soundtrack. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind comes out on Netflix tomorrow. More AM to DM is up next. <laughs> Okay, Hayes, I have a pop quiz for you. Hit me. Which was longer, Aretha Franklin's funeral or Michael Cohen's testimony? Oh, that is a trick question. <laughs> that is a trick question. They both lasted for literally 1,000 years each. I, I have mean, lived and died a hundred times during each of them. Yes, same. same. I feel like it was oh. like longer than the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. longer than a lot of things that it should have been, but... Amen. 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 Well, join us live from the district to talk about what Cohen's hours of testimony means going forward is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. So, what in your opinion was the biggest thing that we learned from Cohen's testimony? I think the details that we learned around the Trump-Moscow deal were really interesting and noteworthy. Of course, we reported back in January that Trump had directed Cohen to lie to Congress, and much of his testimony yesterday confirmed and backed up our reporting. It also uh, confirmed that there was, or at least Cohen alleged, there was a meeting between Trump and himself, Cohen, before Cohen spoke to the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, And during that meeting, uh, Trump sort of told Cohen what he wanted him to say, uh, kind of regardless of the truth. And so Cohen testified that he felt pressured to lie. And there were also elements of our reporting that was backed up by his testimony, one of which was that Ivanka and Don Jr., the Trump children, received regular updates about this project. And so a lot of elements of of what we reported kind of were out on display yesterday. But then, of course, there were other highlights. You know, you've got a guy like Cohen, who is one of the closest confidants of of Trump for the past 10 or so years, saying that this man is a racist, he's a con man, he's a cheat. And that's pretty shocking. So lots of highlights from yesterday's hearing. So the Republicans on the committee seem to be working really hard to try and make this all about Cohen's credibility and just dunking on that. Do you think they were successful in that regard? You know, I think that Cohen does have a serious credibility issue. It's one that federal prosecutors have pointed to in court filings. But I think that Cohen was well prepared for this hearing. He made a point of getting that kind of out of the way from the get-go. He said, look, I've done bad things. I have lied and I'm going to jail to kind of repent for my sins. I'm paying the ultimate price, being away from my family for an extended period of time, you know, sacrificing my liberties. And so he did a pretty good job of really taking uh, responsibility for some of his actions in the beginning and it meant that kind of some of those criticisms didn't seem as, as, as shocking or new anymore because he was saying, yeah, you know, what you're saying is true. I, I have lied before. <laughs> um, and so they, you know, they did level those criticisms at Cohen, but uh, I'm not sure how effective they were considering Cohen addressed this from the start. 
Right. And do you think that's why a lot of Democrats on the committee like went out of their way to like praise him at the top of like each of their questioning? Oh, we uh, seem to have lost Emma for a second. I think the camera's a little worn out from Cory Booker. I mean, I was going to, I would avoid the question too, girl. I see what you did, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was kind of, I, I will say that I was watching it all day yesterday, like so much of America. And uh, yeah, the Democrats, they kind of did like say like, Mr. Cohen, you're so brave to be doing this. You are a true patriot for coming forward and making these statements about the president. And it felt a little much sometimes. Yeah. Like a, just a tad. Just a tad much. But what I loved more was when we were talking about how he was owning it. Because mm -hmm. it like it's frustrating in a way when you like run it. Like, it's like when you're in a relationship and you know your boyfriend messed up. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, you're right. I did cheat on you. Ooh, so that's fair. That's gonna, fair. You, I so, am so, a liar. But here what, is all. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? But I did all these other things. So what's your priority right now? It's like, do you want Yikes. this or do you want that? I was just like, Yikes. this is. The drama on the Hill yesterday was very real. It was very popcorn consumable ready. Okay, I think we have Emma back now. Oh, Emma's back? <laughs> Welcome back, Emma. <laughs> so we Thank were you. talking about. Just uh, took a break. Just a little break. I mean, that's something that they didn't do yesterday. So <laughs> get it. But we were talking about how the Democrats really were going out of their way to praise Cohen at the top of each of their statements and questioning. Do you, you know, do you think that was to kind of counteract what the Republicans were doing? Yeah, I think Democrats knew that Cohen had some serious credibility issues. Chairman Elijah Cummings addressed this from the very start of the hearing and throughout the hearing. At one point, he actually said uh, that he told Cohen several times before the hearing, uh, if you lie, I will nail you to the cross. Mm. Uh, but other Democrats, you know, made the point... <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Chairman Cummings is not messing around. But other Democrats also made the point, you know, that they believe that Cohen would not lie again because he's already going to prison for lying to Congress and a slew of other ch federal charges. What does he stand to gain by lying to them again? You know, he's not trying to protect the president, it doesn't seem anymore. So why would he lie again? So that's, you know, that's a talking point that they referred to. And of course, you know, they were pretty sympathetic in some of their statements. They talked about how hard it must be for, you know, him and his children and whatnot, when really people were saying, can we get to the questions here? Can we try to elicit some new information from this guy who knows the president maybe better than, than most people in this world? Uh, so there was some, you know, some, some talking points and some, some politics on the Democratic side as well. Okay. Well, final thing, Emma, what's in the margarita? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Tequila. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for helping us make, try to make sense Thank of you, it Corey all. Thank you, Cory Booker. <laughs> Thank you, Cory Booker. For Thanks the for having me. Hi. All right. Well, that was fun. So more AM to DM is coming up next. Stick around, everybody. <laughs> Here is a tweet from Colby. Finished Meg Medina's Mercy Suarez Changes Gears over the weekend. Amazing book, well done, Newberry Committee. Well, joining me now is Meg Medina, New York Times bestselling author of the Newberry Award-winning novel, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears. Meg, thank you so much for coming on and congratulations on the Newberry Medal. What an <laughs> honor. Yes, thanks. Thanks. What was going through your mind when you got that call? 
Oh my gosh. Everybody asks about that, which is really the strange thing. Um, I, nothing goes through your mind and everything all at the same time because it doesn't feel real. Um, It was really far from my imagination. So when the phone rang, I was getting ready to watch the webcast actually to see who, who all the winners were this year. Um, And the phone rang and it said Washington, which is where ALA uh, was happening this year. So, you know, I sank to my knees and then later they send you, I think maybe to be cruel or nice, I'm not sure. They send you the audio of what you sounded like when they, when they give you the news. And mine sounded like, you know, it was just sort of guttural sounds and thank you, thank you, thank you, and all these kinds of weird squeals. But I think what happens is that like it hits you slowly over time. You know, like you're you're in the supermarket or you're walking your dog and you burst into tears. It's a little manic, but it's 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 been amazing. That sounds so amazing. And what an iconic <laughs> honor I remember as a little kid seeing that poster in the school library where mm. they had all the Newberry Award winners from every year and now your book is going to be on it. What an honor. Yeah. You told NPR that you wanted to maximize the impact of winning this prize. So what does that look like for you? Well, so like it comes, when you win the Newberry, it just opens up your reach like wider than you could ever imagine um, prior to that. So now I have audience with lots of families across the country, lots of kids, every school library, every public library. And that matters. For me, it matters um, a lot this year in terms of, um, you know, writing stories that really celebrate and sort of reflect Latino families. Um, I'm the first Cuban American to win this award. The first, I, I found out yesterday, I think the first Um, person of Caribbean descent to win this award. So that matters. That's like a heavy thing that I'm carrying inside. But what I really want to do is figure out how to get around sort of the toxicity of the conversation around immigrant families, Latino families this year, and really just talk and celebrate us, just the families that I know, the crazy relatives, the fun times, the, the challenges, like all of it. But to, to just sort of move the literature instead of like in the silo of, you know, multicultural literature or uh, Latino lit into, you know, books about families that happen to be Latino in this country. Yeah. And your book has obviously some lighthearted moments, but it also delves into some really serious issues. You know, we have Mercy Suarez, who's dealing with going to a new private school where she's kind of a fish out of water. And her grandfather, who's struggling with Alzheimer's disease. These are really hard topics for kids, but important topics, of course. Why is it important for you to expose young readers to these bigger topics? (laughs) Yeah. So there's a, that's always a fight, right? Some people uh, usually well-intentioned adults, they want books that are really sweet and nice and, um, you know, that don't frighten kids too much. And I, I get it. I get why I had, I had kids and you, you know, why needlessly frighten them? They only end up in your bed. But I think that growing up is really hard. Um, and it's hard when you're eight, it's hard when you're 12, it's hard when you're 17. And like really happy moments sit right side by side with really creepy, horrible moments. Your girlfriend dumps you, your grandfather gets sick, um, you fail a test, your parents lose their house. I mean, that's the life of a kid um, just as much as, you know, playing kickball or or whatever else they want to play. So I don't know. When I write for kids, I really try to respect them. I really try to write the story 
that reflects who they are at that age, like all the good parts of it and the really um, crappier dark parts too. And I think a lot of adults too think that kids don't notice when things are happening around them, but obviously mm-hmm. they are. And it's, it's important for them to see role models and dealing with these hard topics. So mm-hmm. you posted a photo of yourself in sixth grade on Twitter. You are yeah. so adorable. You have that smize going on, like the Tyra Banks thing. <laughs> did, you include, did you include like any of your own experiences from your own adolescence in this book? Oh my gosh, there's not a book I have written that I have not just like scavenged in the horrors of my childhood, you know, uh, treasure chest. There's just so much. And it's true about everybody's childhood, right? If I asked you right now, like who your worst bully was in elementary school, you could probably tell me, you know, what she said to you or he, where you were standing. Like there are just some, you know, the teacher that frightened you, the adult you thought was creepy, the person who saved you. Like we remember all that stuff. And I think it's, I, the closer I get to writing about it, like when I, un, when I unpack that stuff and I put it in the book, um, this one and, and all of my work really, I think that that's what resonates with kids because I don't back away from telling it the way it is. Um, and it's both funny and sad. You know, it's, it's that sweet and sour, I think, that Mark's growing up. So yeah, I'm all over the place. Everything from, you know, what my bike meant to me back at, at that time, you know, being able to just get on and ride wherever you wanted to go farther than what your mother could see, right? Um, that was in there. And then, and then also like some of the things that my own kids saw. There was a time here when my kids were still living here and they were teens that I had my mother living here. She was in advanced stages of cancer. My aunt and my mother-in-law. So we were like a little nursing home under one roof. And that is a ride when you are with teenagers and very old people who are failing, right? Whose health is failing. And I, I just really observed that, how hard it was for both, of, both ends to reach to the other. I, I love how you were able to take your own experiences, your children's experiences, and then kind of transform them into this character who also has her own experiences as well. That's so interesting. And thank you so much, Meg, for coming on and talking about your book. And congrats again. Thanks so much. It's been great. Mercy Suarez Changes Gears is available now, and you should look it up and give it to a young reader in your life. Up next, Sylvia and Hayes are giving this Black History Month the send-off it deserves. Welcome back to AM to DM. Today is thankfully, finally, the last day in the month of February, and it has been quite the month. Yes, it most certainly has. And so, Sylvia and I wanted to take this moment to present you with a segment that we are calling, in memoriam, the Black History Month from Hell. Sister Sylvia, can you get us started? I can, Brother Hayes. Mm. I most certainly can. Yes. Because Black History Month got off to a fun start on February 1st when Virginia Governor Ralph Northam admitted he was in the 1984 yearbook photo showing figures in blackface and a KKK hood. And who could forget the very next day when Northam declined to moonwalk during a press conference mm-hmm. after his wife told him to mm-hmm. not to. And here's a tweet from February 4th. Mm. So Liam Neeson revealed in the interview that years ago he 
Hmm, let me check my notes here. Considered committing a racist murder after someone close to him told him she was raped by a black man. And another one from the same day. The same day! Howard Schultz says, billionaires should be referred to as people of means or people of wealth. And then on my day of birth, mm. February 6th, mm. the universe decided to bless me with finding out that Virginia's attorney general also admitted to doing blackface because why not? Why not? Let's just all admit. Speaking of blackface, <laughs> remember when Gucci and Katy Perry uh. were forced to apologize for blackface designs. I do haze, mm. I really do. And I also remember Burberry sweatshirt featuring a noose. Oh my God. Because <laughs> Fashion Week is off to a great start. So great. I want to give a special shout out to Disney and Will Smith for mm. revealing to us the genie of our nightmares during the Grammys, really lifting up the people with that. And I want to give a special shout out to the Grammys for having Jennifer Lopez perform the Motown tribute. Yes, I'm still mad. Still mad if and here. Uh. Oh, um, do, do you want to talk about Jussie? Do you want to talk about Jesse? And finally, I would like to thank the Academy for giving the Oscar for Best Picture to Green Book. Boo, Boo is right. Boo is right. Green I am, motherfucking book. They did that to us in our month. <laughs> in our Black Panther was right there. It was, it was right, right there, there in your face, right in your hands. And so I, I propose a toast to the Black History Month from hell. May you go back from whence you came and rot there. We will not miss you. We will look forward to next month, Women's History Month, because mm. how could that possibly go wrong? Oh, Jesus Lord. And as we go to break, <laughs> here's a full list of all the terrible things that happened this Black History Month. Welcome back. We asked, what's your go-to excuse to avoid going out? Rebecca Frank says, I'm 32. And damn if that's not true. Listen. I turned 32 this year, and that is going to be my new, like, I am old, send. that <laughs> <laughs> old, just tired. Yes. And Rudy added, I will say, my cat is acting funny. That's a pretty good excuse. Always blame the pet. They can't say, they can't rat you out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if any pet could rat you out, it would be a cat. Oh, that's true. If they got thumbs, it'd be like... That cat would be like, bitch, she is not. She is in the bed. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Potts had this to say about an interview with Senator Cory Booker. Fruit? Ice? Vodka? Y'all didn't have to do him like that. Y'all are wrong. We didn't do him like that. That was his knowledge lacking. I don't not know ours. who he's been dr not, not drinking with, but I would have been like, listen. I know at least. Jeez. <laughs> oh, We're going to send Cory Booker up. Uh, beverage, a cocktail book or something. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you to all of our guests, Senator Cory Booker, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Emma Loop, Stephanie McNeil, and Meg Medina. I will be back here tomorrow with our new guest host, Lola uh, Oganake, and we will also have our very first Drag Race recap, so you will not want to miss it. Have a great rest of your day, and we made it! We, we did it! We survived Black History Month!